Welcome to Flower Hour. A podcast completely dedicated to baking. I'm Amanda in Los Angeles. And I'm Jeremiah in Sacramento. For 6,000 years, bread has been made, and yet we are still discovering new ways to make it better. But making the perfect loaf of bread is like searching for the Holy Grail, seemingly attainable yet always just out of reach. Or is it? This is a quote from Peter Reinhardt's Artists and Breads Every Day, and I thought it was an awesome way to start this, I know it's going to be epic, way of learning from Peter himself. Welcome, Peter, to Flower Hour. Ah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. We are so excited to have you, and we've got... (sighs) about mm, 10 hours of content that we'd like to cover with you. We're going to try to get it all into one. (laughs) And if you don't know Peter by some crazy chance, he is a James Beard award winner. He's the author of, is it over 12 books now? Uh, Just about to release the 12th. Wow. And you teach at Johnson and Wales and you just have done everything there is to do with bread, but I'm sure you're going to do more. Well, it's, you know, every time I think that I've gotten to the end of like what I have to think or say about bread, something else pops up unexpectedly. <laughs> and have you found that holy grail yet? Are you still searching? Well, I think that, uh, you know, in any quest that any of us go on uh, to find sort of the, the highest benchmark of anything, we have moments where we go, well, that's it. That's it. It can't get any better than this. And then uh, and then you think it's going to be easy to reachieve it. And it might take years to have another bite that tastes just as good as the one you just had. So there have been moments when I feel like you sort of have hit the, the top of the mountain peak. But uh, it's not like it's an everyday occurrence. You've got to work at it. Absolutely. So your bread books were the first books I ever bought. And this is when I was living in New York City doing my graduate studies. And I actually became friends with your nephew. And when your nephew learned that I like to bake, he mentioned, hey, my uncle is Peter Reinhardt. Do you want to potentially have um, lunch with him? And I'm like, are you kidding me? (laughs) So I got to have dinner with you in New York City at a pizzeria called Keste. It really is. And whenever anyone goes to New York, I'm like, you've got to check out that place. Um, But I think that's that's amazing. That was my first in-person experience with you. And your life is so much about pizza these days. And you have this amazing platform called Pizza Quest. And I want to know all about it. Well, you know, pizza is sort of the logical extension of all the work that I was doing with bread. I had reached a point about 15 years ago where I thought I've pretty much said everything I can think of about bread. I was wrong about that. But at that point, I was sort of out of ideas. And I thought, so what's next to write about? And I realized that uh, the other great love in my life besides just bread itself was the thing you make with bread, which is pizza. And so I decided to go and sort of extend that same that same inquiry into what makes great bread into the question of what makes great pizza. And then of course I had to define what I meant by great and that opened up a whole door and it gets very philosophical and very, you know, sort of all over the map and, uh, and it, it becomes a never ending quest. And I think that's the fun part of it. So pizza uh, kind of took over. I've, I've done since then three other books on bread as new frontiers opened up, like with the, the whole grain baking movement and, and the sprouted grains movement and all these these uh, regional uh, things that are happening in the bread world with specific 
wheat strains being developed to match up with regions of the country. So bread itself has continued to become a very big, uh, never-ending uh, category in its own right. And I even uh, organized and put on now an annual international symposium on bread here at Johnson & Wales University in Charlotte, where I'm based. Uh, and, and so bread is still a major part of my life. But pizza has become this great sort of side trick, uh, side trip. And, uh, uh, and just like with bread, it just never ends because we keep finding people that are just pushing the boundaries of what's possible with pizza. And I just define, just to, to sort of lay this foundation, I always define pizza as just dough with something on it. And then after that, the varieties and variations are infinite. So preparing for this episode is how I found out about your Pizza Quest series. And just a quick like little commercial for everybody listening. It is such a joy to watch. I was I was ill in bed a couple days ago and I sat there and binged everything I could Pizza Quest <laughs> online. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that series and, and kind of what they can expect about it? Sure. Well, Pizza Quest itself um, is a website that continues this. the story started by my pizza book in 2005 called American Pie, My Search for the Perfect Pizza. And um, an outgrowth of that was that some, some foodie producers in L.A., guys who just loved going looking for, for cool things to eat, read the book and started using it as a guide for searching for great pizza where they lived. And they were having so much fun with that that they contacted me and asked if I'd like to work with them to put together a, a TV series based on that book that would continue the story in video form instead of just uh, the written form. Because by the time the book came out, it was almost obsolete in terms of places that hadn't opened when I wrote the book that were now popping up all over the country, uh, expanding the the number of what I would call memorable pizzerias. That, that became my operating definition of great is is it memorable or not and and when i wrote the book there were maybe 20 memorable pizzas that i could think of in the united states and certainly many others in italy and other places in the world but it was still a small category and now i would say just in the last 15 years there's probably hundreds of pizzerias doing memorable work and there's this big pizza expo happening every year in Las Vegas and another one in Atlantic City. And thousands of people come and pizza just keeps getting better and better and better. And so uh, I realized that I, even when I wrote that first book, I was just scratching the surface of what's happening in the pizza world. And and so we kept it going and we started making videos and, and we uh, have had it the showings of these videos on our own website at pizzaquest.com. But then it came to the attention of a new emerging network uh, on the internet called Blueprint, which uh, is now owned by NBC. And they liked what they saw. And they asked us if we could re-edit some of the uh, original footage that we had. And we had hours of footage and create seven episodes that they could run as a season one on the Blueprint network. And that just launched a couple months ago. So season one is out there. And some people like you are binge watching it, which, which we love because it's really, <laughs> they're short episodes. They're only like 12 to 15 minutes each. So you can really knock them off in a couple hours um, or you can spread them out if you are able to de delay the gratification. Um, <laughs> so, so, so that's happening. And now we're waiting for the call. We're hoping that we'll get a call any day now from them saying, well, let's do season two so we can get back out on the road because there are so many places, again, even since we started Pizza Quest, that didn't exist when we started, that are now 
popping up all over the place and new categories of pizza are showing up around the country like Detroit style, which is not a new category, but it's become nationally a new category. It's kind of a deep pan pizza. That's the new book that I just finished. It's all about these pan pizzas, which is a, it's very different from Neapolitan style pizzas. And so that's a, a growing category. Uh, a properly done Detroit style pizza is every bit as memorable and enjoyable as a wonderfully made uh, Neapolitan pizza. And there's Roman style pizza coming with a vengeance here in the United States is starting to like pop up everywhere. And by this time next year, I think you'll see Roman style pizzerias uh, as sort of the big players. And again, when well done, it's pretty amazing. They're all amazing because it's all just starting with great dough. It's dough with something on it. And if the dough is great, it hardly matters what's on top. If the dough is just average, which is kind of like maybe the way it used to be, um, then it doesn't matter how good the toppings are. The pizza is just going to be interesting, but it's not going to be memorable. But if you have a memorable crust, but all you need is just maybe a little, just olive oil or sauce and cheese or whatever you put on it is, a, is like a bonus. And when when you put all those pieces together, uh, there's no wonder that pizza is the most popular food in the world. It just works. Dough with something on it works, whether it's executed at an average level and we know this is true because look at the millions of frozen pizzas that are sold every day that are just sort of, they're good, but they're not great. But still, they work. And then there's these new emerging memorable pizzerias that are becoming destination restaurants and the the starting point for lots of serious arguments between friends about who makes it best. I love this term, memorable pizza. I feel like that's such a great, like category, just so you instantly kind of know what level are we talking about. And I have a quick question about Detroit pizza. Is that the same as grandmother pizza or grandmother pie, or is that something different? Similar, but different. So a grandmother's pie is kind of more like a Sicilian pizza. The main difference I would say between a Sicilian pizza, which you see like mainly associated with Brooklyn and places like that, is baked in a pan, baked in like a rectangular pan, uh, usually baked twice. Like the, the crust is baked once, and then uh, because it takes so long to bake, they bake, pre-bake them. And then when you order the pizza, they put uh, the, the toppings on it and throw it back in the oven for five or six minutes to get it finished. So that's kind of a Sicilian style. And the crust is usually about three quarters of an inch to an inch thick, like a focaccia in a way. And then the grandma style pizza, which kind of is associated with part of Queens uh, at a pizzeria called Umberto's, where, the, where sort of that's become the the mother house, let's say, uh, for this style. It's like a Sicilian pizza, but the crust is only baked once. So it's essentially a pan pizza, a dough with cheese and sauce on it, baked one time, and it just takes, when you order it, you know, you have to wait about 20 minutes for it because they, they're making it from scratch, uh, and they cook it at a different temperature so that the bottom and the top all get done at the same time. So they're very similar. But the Detroit style is baked. It, it, it came out of Detroit probably about 60 years ago. Um, it was developed uh, using taller pans, about two and a half inch pans that were used initially for holding nuts and bolts in the Detroit auto factories where they were making things. Then the guy who started it had worked there and gotten his hands on some of these pans and started making pizzas in them. They're a blue steel pan, rectangular with these very nice, you know, corners. And because it was tall enough, you could make a thicker crusted pizza and loaded with cheese. But the, the signature of a Detroit-style pizza is some of that cheese, when it's baking, will melt over the side of the crust and down the side between the pan and the dough. And it creates this little cheesy, crisp 
crust that uh, some people refer to as a frico. A frico is a is a is a sort of a technique of cooking things to where they around off the edge of things where they become very crispy. So it's almost like having a little cheese cracker on the edge of your pizza crust uh, with this very kind of it's a it's the opposite of a Neapolitan pizza in that it's very much more dough. It's a lot more about the the dough and and of course the cheese that's most associated with Detroit style pizza is called brick cheese. It's a Wisconsin cheese that is kind of like a firm version of Munster. And it's wonderful. But now most places that are making this style of pizza, uh, including DiGiorno, I just saw a commercial yesterday, DiGiorno is doing what they, they don't call it Detroit style. They just call it uh, uh, crispy pan pizza. But it looks like a Detroit style pizza. But uh, very few people are using brick cheese because there's just not that much of it. But it's wonderful to make it with it. But uh, in the new book where I, where I give techniques for how to do this, uh, I give a, about six or eight different kinds of cheeses that will work to make that cheesy, crispy, frico-edged crust. And uh, again, it's it's probably was Detroit's little secret for 40, 50 years, and now it's spreading throughout the country. I'm dying over here. You had me at frico. That sounds so <laughs> good. I know, I know. Well, if you're in LA, I think there's a few places now. In fact, if anybody who wants to search, just go Detroit style pizza in and put your city in there. And you'll probably most likely find two or three places that have since opened and there'll be more of them because at the pizza uh, competitions at the, at the expo, which is coming up next month, uh, they have this, these competitions in all these categories and a few years ago, when I first started judging there, uh, only a few of the pizzas that were entered would fall into the Detroit category. And last year, when I went, uh, probably more than half of the pizzas in the in the uh, specialty category, which a specialty category meant anything goes, uh, half of them were these Detroit-style pizzas. So they've really got traction. And I would say it's not even it's 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 already tipping over in terms of the of a trend. And uh, I think the next trend behind it. That will tip over within the next year, as I said, is the Roman style. Both of them equally wonderful, uh, similar but different. And uh, but at the level of where they're the same is that they're totally satisfying when they're properly made. Tell us more about your book. So, what sort of doughs and what sort of equipment are we going to need to make these pizzas? Well, this the book is called Perfect Pan Pizza. It's coming out in May. May 15th is the publication date. So I'm going to get on the road sometime this summer and start to promote it, but it'll be available. I think it's already available for pre-sale on Amazon. It's And it turned out really good. We had a lot of fun writing it. I got a, a great photographer, food photographer, uh, and, and who did some beautiful shots of the, of the pizzas. And we're doing about a third of the book is these Detroit-style pizzas. I just call them uh, deep pan pizzas. To differentiate them from deep dish pizzas, which is like the Chicago style. This book won't have any of the Chicago style deep dish because I think that category deserves a whole book unto itself. Um, it's, it's a slightly different kind of pizza. It's more what maybe an Italian would call a pizza rustica. It's like a casserole pizza. So I didn't make Chicago style part of this book, but the Detroit style is sort of the dominant one because I was just so excited with having worked on a project where I got to try to tweak it and perfect it to to where I was really thrilled with it. And when I, we nailed it, um, I called my publisher and told them that I was pretty excited about this. I, I think we could do a whole book around it. And they said, go for it. And so we made a big part of it that, but we also added chapters on Sicilian style, uh, Roman style, uh, grandma style, and also focaccia and schiacciata, which is basically the Tuscan version of focaccia. So, and, and in the end, the bottom line of all of it is, 
is they're all just variations on a theme. They're all just dough with something on it, done with a few little differences. But the dough that, that we developed for the Detroit style works perfectly for all the other styles in this book. So I give three dough recipes, a, a white dough, uh, one with partial whole wheat, which you call a country dough, and then a sourdough version, because a lot of people are, are becoming fascinated with the whole notion of natural fermentation, sourdough fermentation, which is going to be the next big thing in the bread world. When we start to talk about bread, you know, the we're seeing in, through our symposium that sourdough is a category that, even though it's the oldest way of making bread, is now coming into its own and having a renaissance uh, and will be probably the most important trend in the bread world. So we're including that in the pizza side as well. So then, then after that, it's all about coming up with about 35 different variations of toppings, some of which exist in reality, you know, out there in restaurants that were, that I knew about. And many are, are some that I just was inspired to create uh, because having been raised in Philadelphia, where I grew up as a cheesesteak and hoagie guy, um, uh, I always feel like a pizza and a, and a, and a cheesesteak and hoagie are, again, just variations on a theme. One is dough with something on it, and the other is dough with something in it. And, uh, and I think that some of the great pizza topping ideas were inspired by some great sandwiches, or vice versa. A great pizza can, be, can also be turned into a sandwich. So, uh, so we have a cheesesteak pizza, and we've got a roast pork pizza in there we've got a bon mi pizza with you know because of the 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 surge and in interest in in the bon mi sandwiches so I, I tend to look at the sandwich world for inspiration to create pizza toppings and you know what i could probably the book has 35 we probably developed 75 or 80 so we have enough to that if the book does well we might be able to do a part two uh, because there's no end there's just no end of things you can do once you've got a great dough the creativity is endless wow well if you can think it if you can imagine it then you can make it happen. Mm-hmm. I'm just sitting here thinking about like, what a joyful topic to get to explore. Like it's like pizza, man. It just makes everybody happy. It makes me happy sitting here, hearing you speak about it. And well, Amanda, I got to tell you, you're in LA, right? And, and uh, you, if you want to try this Roman style, there's a new Roman style place in LA. If you haven't already been there, you've got to check it out. Nancy Silverton, who's, who's featured on Pizza Quest from her Pizzeria Moza in L.A., has now opened a Roman-style pizzeria called Triple Beam. Triple Beam. And that, and that refers to the scales that are used in Rome to weigh the slices of pizza. So uh, I'm hoping you'll get a chance to go there because I haven't been since she opened. I haven't been there. Uh, and maybe you could tell me what you think after you get a chance to try it. Do you know what? I am lucky enough that this is actually in my neighborhood. This is like right on the edge of almost walking distance from me. And I took my family there and and we ate like kings. We gobbled it up. <laughs> All right. Okay. So finally, I've got getting to talk to somebody who's actually eaten there. Yeah. But so, I've been so, curious what the name came from and I haven't had time to research. So now you just uh, accomplished that well, mystery for me. Thank you. Well, Nancy, Nancy's the one who told me because I got to interview her last year at the Pizza Expo. I set up a panel of interviewing her and Brian Spangler, uh, who's the uh, founder of Apiza Shoals in Portland, Oregon, one of my favorite kind of New York-style pizzerias outside of New York. He does a version in Portland that can hold its own, you know, with pride in New York. And and we had the three of us on the stage, and I got to be the moderator and just fire questions at him. And so she told us all about Triple Beam, which had just opened. And she said, and it was based on this idea that uh, at many of the Roman-style pizzerias, you don't order a pie. The, the pizzas are already made like focaccias, cut into squares, or you can have them cut to the size you want. And then they weigh the, 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 the slice, 
and charge you by the weight. And so that's a, a triple beam scale is what they use. So that's why she called her pizzeria. It's very cool. Very cool. And I, I she was on a Pizza Quest episode also, right? Yeah, we did. The, actually, we started, we launched the whole series by filming at Pizzeria Mozo. We did, we got enough footage to put about six or seven webisodes, short webisodes. And then when we combined them for Blueprint, we consolidated those into one whole episode, the, the Pizzeria Mozza episode uh, and Nancy's featured there. She's been such an important, you know, she's a national treasure, as ever, most people know, in the culinary world. And and uh, her contribution to the pizza world, when she opened Pizzeria Mozza about 12 years ago, uh, it was a breakthrough pizzeria because she was taking her skill as an artisan bread maker and applying it totally to her pizza. But she's also, uh, you know, a fanatical cheese expert. And so she, she brought all her skills together and kind of uh, married them into a true destination pizza. And it still ranks for me as maybe one of my top three pizzerias in the world. What do you think is driving the innovation with pizza and just also the, the flourishing of all these different styles? It's a great question. I mean, I think it starts with the fact that people just love pizza. So it's a natural, you know, place to, to settle scores, you know, like, uh, you know, my place makes a better pizza than your place. Uh, so we, that's, that argument's been going on for as long as I can remember. But, but also in the last 25 years, there's been such a renaissance in the bread world, in the United States in particular, where we've had this artisan bread movement that has elevated the quality of bread uh, to a whole new level. And um, and bakeries popping up all over the place, making great bread in, in the European style mostly, that uh, borrowing from the techniques that we've learned from the European bread masters uh, to create great bread. And we also have wonderful ingredients to work with here. The quality of our wheat and our flour and everything is unsurpassed. So bread has sort of started this, I think. And, and a lot of the great pizza makers that have just emerged the ones that are sort of not the old school pizza guys, but this new wave of pizza guys, many of them came into it through the artisan bread movement where they learned about pre-fermented doughs and, you know, the, the relationship between time and temperature and the use of natural fermentations and commercial yeast and all those things, uh, you know, have paid off in, in a great way in bread. And now they're applying it to pizza. And so we're starting to see it all come together, essentially. And it just keeps pushing it further. And, and then just people love good food. So anytime somebody can raise the bar uh, in any food category, it starts a stampede in that category. Chris Bianco at Pizzeria Bianco in Phoenix, Arizona, became one of the first poster boys of the pizza movement. And I interviewed him for American Pie for my first book. Uh, Chris is, is really the star of that book. He's featured in there um, because he's the guy that kind of created a new benchmark of how good pizza can be, how it can really be not just pizza as we know it, but pizza as it could be. So then so good that what, why we, why I came up with that word memorable is, is because it's the kind of pizza that once you taste it, once you have it, you can't stop thinking about it. You can obsess over it. You want to bring your friends to it. If you hear anybody's going to Phoenix, you always tell them you have to go to Pizzeria Bianco. It was that good at the time. It was that much better than everything out there that it started uh, really a, a movement. And Chris became a friend and a, an inspiration for a lot of people. Uh, now the, the, the gap has closed. There are a lot of people doing pizza 
as oh, just like comparable that Chris's Nancy being one of them. Nancy Silverton is a good friends of Chris's, and I know that was one of the places that inspired her, as well as the pizzas she had in Naples. And so everybody's borrowing from everybody else, and the gap has closed. Um, and the question's always asked: So what's you know what's next? Can it go any? Can it get any better than this? And then I think that's part of what's driving these new categories of pizza because we've explored Neapolitan wood fired Neapolitan has kind of peaked and it's, you know, leveled out and there's some good ones and there's some average ones. There's a few memorable ones. And now there's these other categories where people just want to have another experience of what pizza can be at its finest. Well, you, you briefly touched on before and kind of with the idea of the future of bread, the future of pizza, that you have a symposium on bread nicknamed on the rise. And I loved it. I love the name kind of cheeky and fun. Um, I'd love to hear more about that. And then I know you talk about the future of bread. Is there a way that if you're not at the symposium, is there a way that at home bread makers, people who are passionate about bread that we can participate or view it or find it in some way? Yes, absolutely. Um, we we actually live streamed the presentations and then kept them archived on YouTube. So all a person has to do is go to International Symposium on Bread or any keywords, On the Rise uh, Symposium on Bread, whatever, on YouTube, and it will take you to our channel. And we've now done two full years of these symposiums, and we're about to do our third year in June uh, with a little bit of a change. So let me back off and the first two years was set up as kind of like a uh, kind of like a TED conference. We had 10 speakers from all different aspects and categories of the bread world, uh, all addressing the subject, the future of bread from their particular point of view. So we had bread historians, we had bread uh, scientists, we had microbiologists, we had uh, people who work on large-scale bakeries, people who work in small artisan bakeries. All of them uh, were given 20 minutes to make a uh, kind of a, a lively, concise presentation, uh, another 20 to 25 minutes for Q&A, and then we would take a break and people would network. And we did this over two days. We had five speakers each day um, and uh, and covered a, a wide gamut of things. And so all of that is archived. Um, those There's 10 from the first year, 10 from the second year. So we've got 20 presentations. And then we decided this year, since there were so many great ideas that emerged from the first two years, that um, we would have one year of just hands-on workshops to put into practice some of the ideas that came out of the first two years, ideas such as working with some of the new generations of flour and grains that are locally grown, and how, how do you overcome the challenges of wheat that's not quite as predictable as um, as the you know the, the stuff you buy at the supermarket, but that possibly can give you an extraordinary result if you know how to deal with it. So we're having workshops like that. We're having a whole workshop on... Uh, and these are all hands-on workshops, so they'll be limited to just 20 people per track. We're going to have three tracks of 20 people each, one on sourdough fermentation and the future of sourdough. The other is the future of these new grains and working with local local mills and local uh, farmers. And the third one, and this is a new track that we feel like uh, just started to emerge at the second symposium, is the notion of um, kind of changing the narrative from bread being perceived in the public as almost the enemy because of books like Wheat Belly and and you know all the all the anti gluten books 
of which there's some validity to those books, but but it's not the whole story. And so we're flipping the narrative, and we're having a track called "Good Bread Is Good for You," and we we believe that that when properly approached and under and understood, that bread can be the hero of the story instead of the the uh, what would you call it the uh, villain the nemesis yeah. yeah the villain yeah <laughs> um, yeah so we're, so so we have a. a a pretty exciting track there where we're going to be getting into sprouted flowers, uh, the digestive issues, um, and all the things that have to do with, um, you know, overcoming the fear of, of eating bread. But we know that part of the reason why people have had such a problem with bread is because the bread hasn't been good. What, what we grew up with as bread was, was fast fermented, um, uh, commercialized wheat, probably wheat that is loaded with glyphosate and all of the things that essentially have been compromising our immune systems. And so if we can kind of get around all of that and get back to the essence of what bread was, and some people say, yeah, how come when I go to like Italy, I can eat bread, but when I come back to the United States, I can't eat bread anymore and I get sick. Uh, maybe there's a reason that, that, that the bread's healthier over there, even though it's still just white flour, and it's, but it's not making them sick. So we, trying to answer those, we came up with this other track. So there'll be there'll be 20 people in each of these tracks, and then during each of the meal breaks, we'll be comparing notes from all the tracks and having presentations at the end. So some of that will also be live-streamed. We're going to have a, a, um, uh, a keynote that will be about the microbiology aspect because now we're seeing a whole community of home bakers that are uh, creating sourdough starters wherever they live all around the world, and there's a... Uh, microbiology group out of the North North Carolina State University that are collecting these starters and analyzing them to find out what they have in common, what the differences are, and which are the the microbes that are creating the good flavors and which are the ones that don't contribute to flavor. So there's a huge, you know, sort of science geeky category that that we're finding is much larger than we would have expected of people that are into that. So they're going to do the, the keynote will probably be about. All, what's happening in that world? We're still formulating the program, and then, um, and then beyond that, each of these tracks will have some presenters from previous symposiums and some new people who will be contributing. Uh, like the sourdough track will include uh, a woman named Sarah Owens, who just uh, recently wrote a book called Sourdough, and she's become you know one of the the hot um, the cookbook authors on how to make sourdough bread, and she's got her own take on that and she'll be one of the instructors in the sourdough course and um tom gumpel who was the uh, had been the uh, bread innovation guy at panera bread for many years uh, left panera to focus on this notion of good bread is good for you and so he and um and richard miskovich who is a, a colleague of mine from johnson and wales who's an author and uh uh, an educator uh, on, and very big into the sprouted grain movement, as am I. Uh, is go they're going to lead the that particular track, and they're going to be bringing in a scientist from Canada who will bring the sort of the scientific, uh, the most recent scientific evidence on what makes sprouted grains so much more nutritious and easier to digest, and why we think it could be the whole future of whole grain baking could be happening in that category. So we're going to have people like that. Uh, the the invitations for buying tickets will go out in about a month, and I've got a uh, like a list of about twenty five hundred people already that are waiting for that. But if any of your listeners want to get on that list, they should write to me at symposium one word symposium at jwu dot edu, 
and get on our on our mailing list so that they can get they can receive notifications and things like that when the tickets become available. I want to get on the list. Amanda Jeremiah. and I want to go. <laughs> we need to go. The date will be uh, June twelfth to fourteenth. It's it's a it's two and a half days. So start with the keynote in the evening, and then two days of of intense baking. Uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, no, Wednesday for the keynote, and then Thursday and Friday for the baking. Uh, that that the second weekend in June. So uh, yeah, we expect the tickets are going to go pretty fast. Oh, for I can sure. Only imagine. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I'm going wow. wild I, over here. I'm like, let's let's hit the road, Jeremiah. We need to do this. <laughs> <laughs> you can come. You can come and do and create podcasts there. We could get you a media pass. Hey, and then, we'll and do then, it. Then you wouldn't have to pay for the ticket. The tickets, by the way, are going to be five hundred dollars, uh, which uh, which I always uh, numbers like that scare me. But uh, we've been told that it's probably underpriced. Uh, last year, we we sold the tickets for the symposium for the academic symposiums for two hundred dollars. And we sold out, and so, but with this one because there's much more work involved and the, and and fewer seats, we had to raise the price to five hundred dollars. But again, we're getting calls from people going, "When can I get my tickets?" So uh, we're just trying to hold them off right now. Thank you to Subi Honey for sponsoring this episode of Flower Hour. The next time you're baking, consider skipping the sugar and substituting it for honey. But not just any kind. Try using the traditional filtered Subi honey or Aunt Sue's raw and unfiltered honey. Both are a great alternative for sugar. For starters, you can use a third less honey than sugar when you bake, which means you're reducing calories. And different kinds can add different flavors, like Subi's orange honey or Aunt Sue's wildflower honey. Plus, when you use Subi honey or Aunt Sue's, you're guaranteed pure, premium USA honey that's tested for the highest quality in purity, clarity, and flavor. How do they ensure this quality? Because all of their honey is produced by the 270 independent family beekeepers who make up the Sioux Honey Association Co-op. The co-op started nearly 100 years ago, and to this day, they still know all of the beekeepers by name. Because they believe it's not just where your honey comes from that matters, it's who. So the next time you're baking, pick up a bottle of Sue Bee or Aunt Sue's at your favorite supermarket or shop for honey online at suebee.com. That's S-U-E-B-E-E.com. I'm jealous whoever gets to go um, because, I mean, I will, hopefully we'll get to go, but um, I was poking around on the YouTube channel last night and it's just a wealth of information and hear about what it's going to be this year. It's like, I just have goosebumps because so much is changing and this whole um, conversation about, you know, bread and how people are avoiding it. And I'm so happy that there's a huge wave of people who are passionate about it, making sure that it's a, an important part of our lives still. Yeah, I don't think it's going to go away. You know, for a while Good. there, everyone was scared. Uh, uh, back about uh, 15 years ago, um, there was a big symposium that uh, we hosted at the Providence campus of Johnson and Wales. I didn't organize it; I was just one of the speakers. Uh, and it was a big media event, and it was it was the first summit. It was a bread summit, they called it, and uh, a lot of media came. And the question that they all were asking all of the speakers was, "Is bread dead?" Because that was the height of the Atkins period and, uh, you know, it was the beginning of the sort of anti-bread phase. And it was, it's, it was a loaded question because how do you answer a question like that? First of all, who knows? But the second question, but my thought was, was that 
you know, bread has been around for over 6,000 years. I don't think it's going anywhere. Uh, but it, but it does have to keep rising to these challenges, and I think they're legitimate challenges. We do need to ask ourselves, you know, how do we make something that at one time was was, was the staff of life because it was the most inexpensive way to feed people. It was a lot of bulk and a lot of calories, but it wasn't necessarily the most nutritious. Now we were seeing that we don't need as much bread to to round out our diet. So how do we make those calories count? And at the same time, not make people sick. And I think part of it is having healthier flour um, and having techniques like the, the long fermentation of sourdough does actually have an effect on the healthfulness of the bread. A longer fermented bread is much easier to digest uh, and less problematic for people with gluten sensitivities. And I'm not talking about people with celiac disease, but just sensitivities. Uh, it's much less problematic than a fast rising bread made with regular commercial yeast produced in, you know, three to five hours. So, and, and, and so there's a lot of, there's a lot still coming out and the science is finally starting to catch up with the anecdotal evidence. It's so cool how something that's been around for so many years can still be so exciting and cutting edge and evolving and changing. I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat here listening. It's like <laughs> Me too. It's so exciting and it's bread. It's, you know, it's not something that just was invented last week, but it's still exciting and still like has a way to be modern and modernized. It's like a thrilling thing, but it is. It's interesting, isn't it? That, that within the people who are, I call them breadheads, you know, people who love bread, uh, there's that say, that fire and passion that we've we also been talking about with people who love pizza. And every category has the, their f fired up, passionate people. But, you know, the bread, people who are into bread are really into it. Uh, and I think the whole fermentation movement, uh, which is a bigger category in which bread falls, uh, you know, as a, as a pillar within that community, fermentation, I think, is at the heart of it all because there's something special about naturally fermented products that seem to touch a nerve a deep uh, almost like a psychic nerve or a psychological nerve or a soulful nerve in in people in general and uh whether they think about it and articulate it the way we do on, on podcasts or they just enjoy it uh there's something satisfying about it and it and it's uh it meets a certain i guess a certain basic need i think well, you've just segued us perfectly because talking about how much people love it, I don't think we've gotten quite such a large response before on social media, right, Jeremiah, asking for it's bread questions. It's been amazing. Yeah. And a displaced housewife on Instagram, her response was just simply, I can't wait for this. And then a ton of exclamation marks. So <laughs> <laughs> wow. cool. they're, they're thrilled to, to hear from you as we are. And like I said, we're trying to cram in 10 hours of bread chat into an hour. So we're going to go into lightning round. Jeremiah and I are going to try to <laughs> muzzle ourselves the best we can. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Uh, but we're going to just... Listen, you, gotta, you guys have to come out to our symposium. and You can broadcast live from the symposium. Oh. We're going to do it. We're coming. If we're invited, we are so there. So <laughs> get ready, Peter. I mean, buckle in because we're about to pepper you with questions as fast as we possibly can. Right, Jeremiah? <laughs> <laughs> I'm all buckled up. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, the first one from at uh, krstn.clns. Um, they are working their way through the Bread Baker's Apprentice, and they want to know what's your favorite recipe from the book? 
Mm, great question. Um, you know, there was a, like a group about 10 years ago that got together and um, kind of an uh, internet group that decided to, everybody in the group would, would commit to baking every single recipe in the Bread Baker's Apprentice, and they would share their notes and, and uh, blog about their experience with each of the breads. I was surprised that like at least like 25 or 30 people actually completed the, the project. So uh, that was pretty cool. I was like amazed and honored. But there's two breads in there that um, I think are especially special to me. Uh, one is, that I think, the centerpiece of the book is the one we call Pan a la Ancien. And it's basically a an overnight fermentation, um, almost like a baguette ciabatta dough, modeled on a baguette dough that I learned when I was um, interviewing bakers in Paris by a baker named... Um, um, Oh, uh, I just blanked out on his name. I'll think of it in a second. Um, anyway, model on the bread I learned in France, um, where the dough was just made the day before, cold, held overnight in the refrigerator, and uh, and then the next day turned into either baguettes or ciabattas or focaccias or whatever you want to make with it. It's just flour, water, salt, yeast, but it's wet. It's like a eighty percent hydration. Uh, as opposed to a typical baguette dough, which is about 66% hydration. So it's much better and stickier. Uh, but the, something happens during that overnight fermentation that affects the flavor and performance of that dough. Later on, now, uh, and I learned this technique back around, 19, around 1995 or 96, so it's been uh, about 25 years. And since that time, of course, things like the New York Times uh, French bread you know, uh, technique came out where um, uh, Jim Leahy created the one where you bake it in a Dutch oven and it uses very much similar principles. There's books called Artisan Breads in Five Minutes a Day that uses the idea of overnight fermentation. I ended up writing a subsequent book called Artisan Breads Every Day, all built around the notion that delayed fermentation creates better quality bread. So this is the, the recipe that I think started that whole trend. And and when I developed it, it was kind of a breakthrough, even though now it seems kind of like simple science. But nobody really was asking the question, you know, why does a, a, a longer fermented bread dough taste better? And why does this one in particular work so well? And we didn't, the baker who showed it to me um, uh, really didn't have a sort of a science background. He just sort of stumbled into this method himself and it worked. But uh, in trying to answer the question during interviews, we had to kind of work it backwards and see why does this technique create better product. And in the end, I, I, I believe I wrote about it in the book, is it's about enzymes. It's about the enzyme activity that's happening, the natural enzymes that are in the flour, some of which are not only in the wheat, but are added with um, uh, uh, sprouted barley flour or malted, they call it malted barley flour, which is usually an ingredient in white flour. Um, those enzymes affect over a period of 12 to 18 hours, begin to break apart the starch molecules and release the natural threads of sugar that are usually bound up in there and that you don't taste them uh, unless you, the, the dough has enough time to unwind those starch molecules because an enzyme will go into a, a, a starch chain and break into the chain and free up glucose and fructose and maltose and release it into the general you know uh, dough and suddenly it becomes accessible to our palate we can taste the sweetness of the sugar finally and it becomes accessible to the yeast as yeast food 
So the yeast can ferment it, and it also becomes accessible to the oven where it can be caramelized to create this beautiful golden brown color. And all this happens, you know, only after a certain amount of time. So we figured it all out. And now, of course, everybody's utilizing those techniques. Pizza makers have intuitively known it forever because most pizzerias always make their dough a day ahead and hold the, the dough balls overnight and never think about it very much. But that's one of the reasons why a pizza dough is, even though it's just bread dough, is... Pardon me. A pizza dough that, even though it's just bread dough, is still, you know, so, almost tastes like better than bread. So that little that was the centerpiece of the book, and I think that that has led to so many things to both for me and for other bakers that I'm very proud that we introduced it there. And then the other bread that I love is the multigrain. I think in the book we call it multigrain extraordinaire, but it's based on my the first bread that I ever really developed and became known for. When I had my own bakery back in Santa Rosa, California, uh, and the bread was called Struin. And I introduced that in my very first book, The Brother Juniper's Bread Book, which is the name of our bakery. Uh, and that Struin bread became the signature bread of our bakery. And it, and it is a, uh, a straightforward dough, but it's multigrain. It has a certain ratio of, of bread flour and cornmeal and oats and bran and cooked rice and a uh, little honey and brown rice, and it and it makes a wonderful soft sandwich bread. Um, makes wonderful rolls, and for some reason, that bread, partly because of the flavor itself and the fact that it makes amazing toast, and then also the story behind that bread, in which it's related to uh, a, a three or four hundred year old Christian tradition uh, from Western Scotland of making this strewn bread once a year during the Harvest Festival called Michaelmas, or Michaelmas, as they would say over there. Uh, that, that's where I, I discovered the bread was uh, in studying it, but there was no recipe. And so we had to just kind of create our own version of a harvest bread. And this so Struan became one of the first breads I ever developed, even before I was a professional baker, just from fun and, and personal interest. And it became the centerpiece of our restaurant and bakery. And, and I probably have included a version or variation of Struan in every book that I've done since, every bread book that I've done since, uh, the first ones were done with commercial yeast. Now that now we're doing sourdough versions of them and varying the grains and introducing sprouted grains. So it's, so it's evolved into you know many versions. But even the original version, the simplest of all, uh, is still one of the most satisfying breads that I. It's still my favorite bread of all time because when I toast it up, um, it brings back so many memories. I know that when we started our restaurant. And bakery, we made a few loaves every day, and we'd start the day with two slices of strewn toast with fresh butter and jam and a glass of orange juice. And that's how I started my day for a couple of years. So I have these, you know, associations with the bread um, of being both satisfying and nourishing and, um, and then also helping us to create a successful business. I'm so happy that you talked about Struan. I know Jeremiah and I were both hoping that we'd get at least some of that on this episode. And now we're going to quickly jump to pizza for a little bit. We have a question from Southern Fatty. Hi, Southern Fatty. Uh, he says, I've had good luck making dough without oil. Is it better hydration of flour? Discuss, please. Well, oil has a function in bread, and certainly many breads don't need oil, don't require it. Uh, a great baguette or French-style bread doesn't have to have any oil and shouldn't have any oil at all. A great pizza dough doesn't need to have oil in it unless you're using a very high-protein flour, like a New York-style dough would have oil 
to counteract the toughness of the protein in the high gluten flour. But a Neapolitan pizza dough is usually made with a softer flour and doesn't need oil because it's baked at a high temperature. And yes, the dough uh, is highly hydrated. It means it has a lot of water and, um, and the high heat of the oven drives off some of that moisture, uh, but doesn't dry out the bread completely. So because it bakes in just a few minutes. And so you still get the tenderness and everything else. The, the times that you want to use oil in a bread, and by the way, the Struan bread that we just discussed doesn't have any oil in it at all, but it does have uh, some honey and sugar and buttermilk, all of which add, they, they sort of serve a function of retaining hydration. There's certain things that are hydroscopic and they'll hold moisture, and oil will do that as well. So usually oil is used in doughs when you want to tenderize the dough. Um, uh, or either for that or for flavor. If you're using butter, for instance, in a brioche or in a croissant, then you want the butter flavor as well. Uh, but they also have the function of keeping the product tender and holding moisture in. So a, ba a baguette, there's a reason why a baguette it really isn't very good on the second day, typically because it dries out because it doesn't have oils and other hydroscopic ingredients holding the moisture in. So the dough gets stale very quickly. And so its, it's oils are used as an anti-staling um, agent as well. And you certainly see them mostly in soft sandwich breads or soft rolls because they do help to keep the bread softer. But uh, absolutely, it depends on the bread, whether you need to put oil in or not. And there are many breads that maybe the recipe called for oil, but that you find that you don't really need, need it at all. I'll, I think in my very first book, I, I have a recipe for uh, a sandwich white bread in which I just take my, my baguette dough with no oil at all. And usually loaf breads, sandwich breads and things like that usually have some oil or melted butter in them. But I just made it with just the baguette dough and baked it in a loaf pan. And I'll tell you, it was about the best white bread I ever had. And, and if you don't um, bake it, if you bake it at a lower temperature and not uh, crisp the crust up too much, as it, as it cools, the crust softens and you have a wonderful soft sandwich bread with, without any oil or sugar or anything else in it. So we have three questions that are kind of similar. So I'm going to read all three of them. Is and from HM Jocks wants to know the best way to bake pizza in a conventional oven. And then LH Hilton four two eight wants to know how do you get a crispy crust without a fancy oven. And then at underscore sugar or sorry sugar underscore attic wants to know what is the secret to a crispy crust. So I feel like those all three kind of go together. And we're talking about pizza crust, right? Yes. So, yeah, so he, the, the two secrets, I think, the two most important tips that I would have to give are, number one, always make the dough a day ahead, at least, you know, and you can hold it for up to three days, or even some people hold it for four days in the refrigerator, but make it ahead of time so you have that enzyme activity, which releases the natural sugars and allows the dough to brown up in a, in a much more beautiful way. Uh, then the second tip is crank the oven up as high as it'll go. Uh, a home oven typically can't get much higher than five or 550. Um, uh, and if you have convection, even use the convection because that adds another 50 degrees of heat intensity. Uh, but the hotter the oven, the better, because think about it, a Neapolitan pizza baked in a wood-fired oven is typically baked at about 800 degrees. Well, we can't get our ovens that hot, and we wouldn't necessarily want to uh, because a, a Neapolitan pizza comes out of the oven with a crisp crust, but the crust gets soft very quickly because it only takes 60 to 90 seconds to bake. Um but an, uh, an American-style, a pizza like Crispianco's Pizza, which is inspired by a Naples pizza, it's Neapolitan in spirit, but it bakes for about four minutes. I find that four to between four and five minutes in a home oven 
if you can get it baked in that time, it's ideal to get sort of a Neapolitan style crust and everything else. But you cook it long enough so that you drive off enough moisture to allow the outside to stay to crisp up and stay crisp while the inside part of the cornicione or the edge of the pizza will still be creamy when you bite into it because it hasn't given up all its moisture. And so, again, it's finding that balance point. But but it, it starts with a hot oven. Uh, the, the, old, the old cookbooks, the, I'll call it the Betty Crocker-style cookbooks, that go way back to tell you how to make pizza. It's usually, you know, make a, make a type of bread dough, uh, use it the same day, bake the pizzas at 350 or 400 degrees, I don't know how they came up with that other than to make it idiot-proof, but it's not going to give you a memorable pizza. Um, the, and the, but the notion of baking at 500 degrees was was something you'd never see in a Betty Crocker cookbook. They don't, you know, that was too scary for most people to even think about. But now it isn't. And so, um, you know, uh, keep your oven super super hot. I think Jeffrey Steingarten in The Man Who Ate Everything talks about his experiment in jerry rigging an oven. So that the the thermostat wouldn't kick off, you know, at at five fifty or something. He just kept cranking it up till he got it to about seven or eight hundred degrees, and uh, and he and he baked the pizza. He worked on this dough, this overnight dough. He did everything just right. Put the pizza on a stone in the oven, um, shut the door, and then I guess the oven was was so hot that it kind of created a, a vacuum or a suction. He couldn't get the door open. And so they're trying everything to get the door open and time is going by and they're looking in the oven and the pizza's getting burnt. And before finally, after they finally got the oven door open, all that was left was like a little a little charcoal cinder you know, in the middle of the oven. And, and I think if I remember correctly, his punchline was, but we were getting closer. Oh, I love that attitude. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So those, are two, those two tricks could just change everything for most people that are just getting started. Excellent. Okay, so we're going to jump from pizza to sourdough now, and I want to start with the sour flavor. We have two questions kind of directed at that, one from at Dos Santo, and their question was how to make sourdough very, and that has like 10 R's in there, very sour, and then at A-W-K-O Taco, Two three seven says, what kind of starter do I need to make a San Francisco-style sourdough? <laughs> well, to make a San Francisco sourdough, you need San Francisco starter. But to make a San Francisco style sourdough, which is basically just another way of saying sourdough because it's just flour, water, salt, and yeast, uh, you just need a starter from where you live. And I think that's a better uh, you know, way to go. It's always nice to work with the local indigenous microorganisms. Um, the, the different regions of the country and the world will yield different flavor profiles because of different kinds of bacteria and it's the bacteria by the way that's making the sour not the yeast the wild yeast leavens the bread and it gives it a nice flavor but it doesn't create the sour tones the what's unique about natural yeast wild yeast is that it can endure the acidity created by the bacteria whereas commercial yeast will die at if the dough gets a ph of about 4.0 or 3.4.5 or something it starts to die off but wild yeast is much hardier and it loves to coexist with the with the bacteria so you're kind of creating with a starter a, a symbiotic relationship between um the star the bacteria and the yeast and you've cultivated over a series of a couple of weeks to get your starter good and you know full of both those organisms and then you just keep it alive by feeding it on a regular basis with fresh flour and water. Um, now, 
the question does come up, okay, if I make a wet starter, like a sponge, is that going to be a different flavor than if I make a stiff, firm starter, like I see at some bakeries? The, the wisdom is that supposedly a firmer starter can create a more acidic, sour flavor, and a sponge starter tends to make a more um, buttermilky, less acidic, but, but more buttery flavor. I'm not sure that I've seen that to be true. I think more importantly is the area where you live and how uh, and the temperatures in which you're fermenting that starter. Uh, but uh, sometimes you you sort of can't make a starter that's in the East Coast where I live. It's not going to taste as tart as a starter in San Francisco because San Francisco bacteria includes a large amount of a bacteria called lactobacillus san franciscans which was a, given a name by a japanese microbiologist who identified it and it's, and and that bacteria exists all over the world in many starters but not to the abundance that it does in the bay area where the climatic conditions are just so perfect for it so you get that distinctive san francisco flavor there now if you want to make your starter more sour tasting because you feel like you're doing everything right whether you're using a spongy starter or a firm starter, but it's still not sour enough, and you're afraid that if you let it go too long, it's going to it's going to go over the hill. I, I learned a trick from a sourdough scientist. There's a, these guys who specialize in sourdough fermentation, and they said if you add, of all things, sugar to your starter the day that you like the last starter that you're going to make before you turn it into a, before you put it in your bread dough, so you feed your starter with a little bit of sugar, and it's not a lot, it's about, you know, maybe 2% or 3% of the total weight of the flour, so it could be a teaspoon or a tablespoon, but if you add that to the starter, that somehow that sugar will encourage the development of of uh, acetic acid as opposed to lactic acid, and the acetic acid tends to give it the more sour, the sour flavor, the more, it's almost a vinegary, you know, acetic as you think of for vinegars. So, uh, that's a trick that you can try if you're doing. If you know, if you're happy with your bread, but you just want more sour flavor, add a teaspoon or, or two of sugar to the starter on the last build, the last time that you build it up before you put it into your bread, and then follow your recipe and see if that makes it more sour. Very helpful. And so, because it's my podcast and Amanda's, I I'm going to ask my questions next. All right, you get to, you get to jump the line, huh? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, how do you determine? This is not a sourdough question. I have tons, but I'm going to bounce around. Um, okay, my first one. Actually, I'm going to do this one. Okay, is there a limit to how much sugar you can put in a, a dough for a sweet, enriched bread? Oh, I, I don't think, I mean, I think it depends on the bread you're making. I don't think there's an actual, there's some breads that are very sweet uh, that could have 15 to 20% sugar to flour. We always think, bakers think in terms of the ratio of that ingredient to the weight of the flour. So typically like a sandwich bread might have five to 6% sugar to flour, just enough to give it sweetness without drawing a lot of attention. Um, and some like a, maybe a cinnamon bun dough or something like that. Uh, might have 20% sugar. And you, so you can go that far. At a certain point, too much sugar will actually kind of like overwhelm the, the uh, yeast and cause it to almost get punch drunk. Um, there's even a special kind of yeast that you can buy. Saf yeast makes a gold yeast. Um, and, it's, uh, and it's designed to 
specifically for doughs that are either very sour or very sweet because it can it can stand up to the um, to the the way that the dough hydrates when you have sugar because sugar is so hydroscopic it sucks up a lot of moisture so there's certain yeasts that are that are designed to be able to tolerate that situation better um, but um, but as far as the amount I think yeah at a certain point there's probably too much but then again it's the same thing with salt I mean you don't want to ever put in probably more than two percent salt to flour because after a while if you first of all it's going to make it taste salty but also salt will affect the fermentation because it it, it works against the yeast it restricts fermentation it's like a preservative salt is the oldest preservative we have so it, it's against it works against fermentation and so too much salt will affect the fermentation it will affect the gluten development it will make the dough less strong um uh, if you don't put enough salt in, the dough can be less strong. But if you put the right amount of salt in, the dough becomes actually just the peak of strength. The gluten develops perfectly. But too much or too little can adversely affect the development of the... So there's so many things in the balancing act. I mean, who would have thought that flour, water, salt, and yeast could have so much drama going on in there? But there's the effect of each ingredient on itself. There's the the drama of these microorganisms fighting for sugar and and digesting them and making carbon dioxide and, and, and alcohol and the yeast and the bacteria going after the same organ same sugars but producing a different byproduct. I mean, there's a lot of lot going on there. Um, and then there's the the proper heat and temperature of the oven that could take a perfectly made dough and either ruin it or you know render a perfect loaf. Um, so. So I think in the end, you have to decide, okay, what's the product I'm trying to make? What is the function of the ingredient I'm putting in? And then what is the tolerance of this dough for that ingredient? And at a certain point, too much sugar can overwhelm the yeast more than anything else. Um, and, then, and then it might slow fermentation down while the yeast is kind of recovering from the shock of too much sugar. And then eventually it can just take off. And then it can over-ferment because then it's got so much sugar that it kind of creates too much alcohol. And you taste, and you can't bake all that alcohol off in the oven, so you get this sort of stale beer taste in your in your bread. Um, so there, I'm sure there are recipes where there's a lot of sugar, and the way they counteract the uh, the over fermentation is is that they ferment it quickly at a much faster rate. They don't let it ferment for a long time because they're counting on the flavor of the sugar to dominate instead of the flavor of the wheat. So when you want the wheat flavor to be more pronounced, you want to use less enrichments like sugar. And when you want the enrichments to dominate for flavor, like you would for certain kinds of sandwich breads and things like that, brioche is one where you're really tasting the butter and the sugar and the eggs as, as much or more than the wheat, then you know you can make that switch. They're all, they're all what's the word, legit. They're all valid. It's just that in the end, it's all about the end product. What does it require? Does that, does that help answer yes. your question? Yes. And then my other one, and then I'll, Amanda, you can go, <laughs> is, um, and I think this is great for a lot of beginners. How do you, what is the best way to tell if your dough has proved enough during the first and second rise, respectively? The usual uh, wisdom on that is, is that during the first fermentation, you'd like to see the dough double in size. That, and that's usually about all it can do before it will collapse on itself. And, but if you don't, and if it doesn't double, then you you haven't developed maybe enough gas or enough fermentation flavor to um, you know to 
give you a good second rise because the, the 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 first rise is very key to the whole structure of the final loaf because when you when you do that first rise if you get a, a doubling of the loaf and then if you're gentle when you do the shaping and don't punch all the carbon dioxide out of the dough during that punch down stage so to speak or shaping stage but keep some of the gas in there it becomes the foundation for the second rise the final rise where you get larger more irregular shaped holes which allow the heat to penetrate the loaf easier than than smaller holes do. And it's all again, it's all about this balancing act. Um, so I always suggest to get you know, try to get your first rise to be in double in size, um, and then uh, after you shape it, um, then typically the final rise you really only need to go about one and a half times uh, in size. If you double on the final rise it will tend to have nowhere to go but down when you put it in the oven because it's it's kind of stretched as much as it can stretch. But if you're about one and a half times to maybe a little bit more than that, um, there's room for oven spring, which is nice when you put the loaf in the oven and you see it kind of continue to rise while it's, while it's baking as the carbon dioxide is still being produced by the yeast before it dies in the oven and the, the steam that's being generated internally is causing the loaf to expand. We love to see a loaf expand by 10 to 20% when it goes in the oven. Um, and that means that you caught it just right on the rise. You get it on the rise instead of at the peak of the rise. Now, that's a that's a general rule, by the way. Just a gen- general that's rule. It doesn't apply 100%. There's some places where there's exceptions to that, but it's a good guideline. Are you are you done doing your cutsies, Jeremiah? <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> okay. I want more, but... Okay, uh, we got... A bunch of questions about flowers, so I'm going to kind of sling three at you at one time. So from at Milt's dad, how much of a difference can we predict using supermarket versus artisanal flour? And then from at to die for baking, what are a couple of good bread flowers I should have in my pantry? And then at Seth Hill 51, any recommendations for purchasing high quality flour online? I feel like those kind of go together a little bit. Okay. Well, I think that first it's it's important to say that that uh, commercial flour that we buy in the supermarket, whether it's King Arthur or General Mills or Pillsbury or there's a few others, I guess, that are you know nationally distributed, they're all really good. They're all very effective, uh, high quality, and predictable and reliable. And that's one of the most important things about you know if you're baking, especially professionally, you want reliability and consistency. Um, uh, and so it's kind of like they have to blend the miller has to blend each year. The, the wheat can vary in strength and performance. So they have to find the blend each year that kind of approximates what the bakers are used to from the previous years. So that's part of the art of milling. It's its own craft and art in itself. Um, and all those brands I find to be good. I, I tend to not, uh, uh, out any one particular brand over another only because I know they all work uh, pretty well. I mean, at home, I may have a favorite flour that I use, but I, I, I bake, when I do my books, I test with all the major brands and they all work really, really well. And then in the end, you just choose the one that you like the best or feel the, the most connection with. Um, then as far as the artisanal flours, um, there is a lot of growing interest in these flours, the flour that is milled close to where you live locally with, with maybe a small batch uh, grain that 
you know, was commissioned by that miller. We're going to see more and more of that. It tends to be more focused in the whole grain community because for people that put that much work and effort into it, um, number one, it's hard to grow the bulk of white and do it as white flour um, because it just you just need to grow so much of it to make that work. But for whole grain, there's a smaller segment of people, you know, baking in that category. So these local grains and, and small mill grains, um, I think it's just always, it's always wonderful to support the local economy and the local bay, uh, millers and farmers that are in your region. And, and, and also knowing that the grains that grow in that region thrive in that region for, a, for a reason, for the reason of, you know, the, of, of that area. And if you're living there, then, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to draw from, from uh, foods that have been produced close to home, both psychologically and spiritually and physically as well. So, uh, so, it's, and so that's a growing movement. Um, it's hard to differentiate them from like, say uh, a whole, whole wheat flour that you buy on the shelf, except that, you know, that whole wheat flour you buy on the shelf is at least minimum two weeks old and probably more like two or three months old and whole grain flours, don't do have a limited shelf life. If you're buying locally and getting flour that's recently and freshly milled, you're going to get the best tasting flavor, and you're going to get it before the the, the germ uh, in that flour starts to go rancid because there's natural oil in the germ. So fresh flour is a better flavor and better tasting flour. The the one thing that you just have to know, and it's hard to always know unless you can talk to the millers or the person who's selling it to you, is what's the performance. Uh, capabilities of that flour. Some flours are better for breads and others are better for pastries. So you want to know what's the protein content uh, and um, you know, what do they recommend that you, know, you use it for. Rye flour is becoming hot again. People are beginning to kind of uh, be interested in rye bread again. And we're, we're seeing small amounts of that being produced Rye is hardier than wheat, so you can actually grow it in more areas. And we're, we're seeing more interest in, in making rye bread, so I think we'll see a lot more of that being planted. And then there's the like rare uh, heirloom flowers and the land-raised flower, flowers, that, the grains that go back generations and generations before hybriding. Uh, and they're, they're hard to find, but they're more available to find. And some people are finding that those flour made from those kinds of grains um, – are easier to digest. The molecular structure seems to be easier to digest, and I'm not sure if there's enough science to say why or to verify it. But I, but I would say, just again, this is hypoth. Uh, what's the word? It's a hypothesis on my part. Is I think that more important than than the molecular structure of those wheats, because I've seen some really good modern wheat that is not problematic at all. Is I think that it's going to be really important to Try to source your wheat more from organic growers than commercial growers because most of the commercial flour that you buy out there, by necessity, is laced with glyphosate, which I think is becoming. We I used to feel like I was like like the lone prophet in the wilderness crying out against glyphosate because nobody seemed to believe me. But now it's all over the news, and it's I think it's tipped over, and everybody finally realizes that glyphosate is the devil. You know, it, it's it's sort of like it, it, it saved the, the, the volumes of crops, but at the cost of destroying our immune systems and our microbiome and our digestive tract, there's just too many negatives that are coming out about it. 
um, so that any way that we can avoid it, uh, because that glyphosate wasn't designed to affect the wheat kernel itself. It was designed to get rid of weeds and stuff around the wheat, but it inevitably got on the wheat, which meant that it inevitably got ground up into the flour, which then means it got into our digestive system, where it has the same effect on our digestive system that it has on the ground. It keeps, it keeps you know, uh, predators and other things from, uh, you know, eating your wheat. Well, it's affecting the good predators as well as the bad ones. It's killing the good bacteria in our gut. So I think gut health is is a huge issue, and it's going to only get bigger and bigger and bigger because we're seeing it's the key to general health. And so so as much as we can, and you can't avoid commercial wheat 100% of the time, and, you know, it's, I think it's a small amount's not going to, not going to kill us, but if we're if we're consuming a lot of it, uh, it just wears you down, you know. So try to flip the script on that and see if you can get into into cleaner, healthier wheat, uh, and that I think is important as the as maybe well the different subjects, but similar in importance to s- supporting the reemergence of the ancient grains as well. Well, Peter, this has been amazing. We could literally talk to you all day, and I think we will have to make a part two, a part three, a part four, like a series of bread <laughs> episodes for our listeners, because as as we can tell, everyone wants to know more, wants to grow their knowledge. But thank you so much for spending this time with us, and we can't wait to connect with you again. Well, it's been a joy for me as well, and uh, as you know, I could talk about bread and pizza all day, so let's just uh, extend the day into a series of things. <laughs> keep the conversation going thank you so much what a joy it is to learn from you and uh, we can't wait to do it again thank you Amanda so much and uh, I will look forward to our next conversation be sure to subscribe to Flower Hour on iTunes or SoundCloud and if you're enjoying your time with us leave us a review we'd appreciate it 